Oh, that is extra special. Thank you, Phoebe. We just kind of close in a word of prayer after that, couldn't we? <laughs> wonderful. Very wonderful. Thank you. We're in gospel of uh, the Gospel of Luke, if you turn there now. We're in chapter 17. Gospel of Luke, chapter 17. Just two verses today. Verses 20 and 21. Now, having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, Jesus answered them and said, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there it is, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Amazing declaration. The kingdom of God is in your midst. As we open up, I know we all know 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed, right? There's nothing included in scripture that does not belong where it is in scripture. Luke, who was a man, Luke the man, uh, he's genuinely the personality who is writing, Uh, God is surely using Luke's persistence in the fact that he has done extensive research into Christ and answers about him. There's much in the process that that God, where God uses Luke's personality, but ultimately God is the author of Scripture, and the Holy Spirit he superintends or, or supervises the writing of all Scripture so that Luke never makes an error. Never makes an error. Referring to the Old Testament prophets, Peter wrote about this in his first letter. This is in chapter 1, verses 10 to 12. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries. They too were very diligent. Seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. Um, So they were mentally and and emotionally engaged in the process of writing scripture. But as, as Peter continues, it was revealed to them, meaning the prophets, that they were not serving themselves, but you, meaning the reader, in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Peter also declared this, this similar principle of divine supervision over Scripture in, second, in his second letter, 2 Peter one twenty one, stating that no prophecy, and there he's speaking about prophecies of Scripture, written prophecy. No prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. That's how we came upon uh, having the scriptures. God's Spirit guided men, men like Luke, to investigate, to carefully write, and during the process, God the Holy Spirit carefully superintended their writing without error, without any error. With that clarified, uh, listen to the opening words of Luke. These are the opening words in chapter 1, verse 1, of this gospel concerning his investigation into the facts surrounding Christ. Inasmuch as 
Many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished amongst us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. It seemed fitting for me as well, says Luke, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things which you have been taught. Luke carefully investigated. He interviewed many eyewitnesses concerning the life of Christ. He boldly claims to provide the exact truth to all of these facts. Folks, does that happen anywhere else in the world? Exact truth and an exact facts, does that ever happen in the newspapers? Does it ever happen in any investigations that are of any magnitude? Does it, does it ever happen in our political system or in Congress? It never happens. The exact truth. And consider this, have, have you ever noticed that Luke doesn't cite sources? Doesn't cite sources. He surely has sources, there's no doubt about that, but he never says, you know, I interviewed Jesus' mother concerning this, and she provided me first-hand information. You know, Luke's Gospel, it's nothing like the journalistic research that we see today, every day in the news, reporting we see in the world. You know, the evening news, we see it again and again, don't we? Um, says something like, usually says something like, according to our sources at the White House, the budget deal has been reached, right? There are sources, there's an authority, the White House, or representatives there at the White House. Or reporters have spoken to the director of intelligence, and he, he assures us all of the information in this report is credible. Again, hinging on a position of someone... They do that in order to be perceived as reliable as possible. The world always supplies its sources, credible or not. Isn't it amazing the Bible never works that way? Luke very likely did speak to Mary. He surely spoke to a number of the apostles, many other eyewitnesses. But the authority of his gospel does not hinge upon the credibility of sources from man. Praise God, because we know what we get from man. Virtually the whole Bible works this way. You have 66 books, 40 or more authors, 1,600 years, never an error, perfectly preserved for all that time, never a contradiction. There is one preserved story of a redeeming Christ. Across all of that time and all of those chapters. And as Christians, think about this. Have we ever seen any visible evidence that this is so? That, that, that all that we teach and all that we believe, have we ever seen any visible evidence? Miraculous evidence. Of course we haven't seen miraculous evidence evidence that the Bible is true. We read it, and the Spirit testifies that it is true. Our assurance arrives from elsewhere, not hinging upon man. Uh, we'll get to that in a moment. 
But it should not surprise us when Jesus says in verse 21, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is not physically visible. When questioned by Pontius Pilate as to what crime he had committed, whether it was true that he was king of the Jews, Jesus replied in this way, he said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this reason I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And then, of course, Pilate famously responds, Well, what is truth? He was dealing with the same thing that we are today. He knew that the credibility of man was, was awful, completely awful. Um, Jesus' respond, uh, response to Pilate, you might have noticed, is in, in the present tense. You say correctly that I am a king. It's not something in the future. My kingdom is not of this world. It's not something entirely in the future. And the Pharisees want to know, you know, when is this kingdom coming? When is the kingdom coming? That is their question And Jesus' reply to him is, it's already here. The kingdom is in your midst. In fact, he reassures in verse 21, behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Literally, it's in you. It's amongst you. It is is right here. But you can't see it. You can't see it. This is a big stumbling block for people like the Pharisees. The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is. The kingdom is not coming with visible signs, or coming by visible signs. Don't let the statement, is not coming, throw you. Don't let that confuse you. Um, The kingdom... uh, The kingdom of God is something entirely in the future, that it's coming at some point in the future. That was a mistake that the Pharisees were making due to the fact they couldn't see anything. They asked, when is his kingdom coming? But Jesus' statement can also be rendered, the kingdom is not not to come, the kingdom is not to come with signs. Meaning, it, it doesn't come accompanied with signs. It's not coming with signs, you follow me? Isn't that isn't coming, or that it, it's, it's not already here, it's that it's not coming with visible signs. Don't let that statement throw you. That was a mistake of the, uh, of the Pharisees. Um, this is easily seen, by the way, uh, when Jesus clarifies, it's in your midst. It, it, it's, it's here. It's here. I am a king, but you can't see my kingdom. What type of kingdom, then, is, is present, but it's not visible? What kind of kingdom is that? It's a spiritual kingdom, right? A spiritual kingdom is in your midst. It is amongst you. It is in you. 
Spiritual kingdom refers to the existing spiritual reign of a king. Christ says, my kingdom is not of this world. Kingdom is not of this world. Whoever speaks like that? You ever think about that? Whoever speaks like that? Nobody I know speaks like that. Which leaves only two options, really. First one you're not going to like, or I hope you don't like it. The first one is that Christ is a lunatic. My kingdom is not of this world. And when you read through the Gospels, especially the Gospel of John, you can't get through the Gospel of John. When you go into chapters 14 through 17, really really the entire Gospel, you read it, you'll see things you know, like, believe in God, believe also in me. I am in the Father, the Father is in me. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father, he told his disciples. Declarations uh, unimaginable by any mere man. Um, Some would say he's a lunatic. Which would make the apostles who had seen him raised from the dead all the first generation Christians who saw him of that generation, lunatics as well. It would mean the second generation uh, people like Timothy, Titus, all those that we read about in Scripture, well, they were lunatics as well. And by the way, today, the Christians who, who come together to, to worship a Christ they can't even see must be lunatics also. Everyone's lunatics. Um, Believing in something that you can't see. There's one other option. There's one other option. Christ is exactly who Scripture and history declare Him to be. One who reigns today as a king, only over a kingdom that you cannot see. Um, Folks, this puts all of us in a pretty tight spot if you think about it and you logically work this out, because you either have to join the rest of us lunatics that are around, you either have to join us, those who believe that Jesus is the sinless Savior of the world who was prophesied by the prophets of the Old Testament, a testament, by the way, and written in Scripture, the one who was predicted, who, who died for our sins, by the way, and rose from the dead, one who still reigns supreme, or, or you, you entirely dismiss him as a farce. It's one or the other. The Pharisees dismissed him as a farce. They dismissed him as king. They, why? Because they couldn't visibly see his kingdom. We don't see anything here. There's one other proposal we need to dismiss, just, just very quickly. Don't lose your track, but before moving on, Folks, enough of this imagining a Jesus how you want him to be. I, you know, I've listened to way too many over the years. They claim they believe in a Jesus who tolerates sin unconditionally, who would never send anyone to hell, uh, would never ask anyone to deny themselves and follow him. You know, they walk with him. They talk with him. Uh, they have a great relationship with someone who de- didn't, ever exist and still doesn't today. You and I, neither you or I, are permitted to fabricate an imaginary Jesus. We are not. Uh, A Jesus that has no 
basis in textual history. You, you can't just make it up. That, that's lunacy. Saying we're just going to make up this character named Jesus and sing songs to him on Sunday. That's lunacy. We either need to believe that Jesus is exactly as he pro, is proclaimed and described in Scripture, or you don't. That's end of story. Any alternative imaginary Jesus not firmly established in the Bible is no more real than a fairy. Think about that. And folks, it's this imaginary type of presentation that is given about Christ. I've run into different people over the years. And uh, one fellow, I'd try to speak to him about Christ as Lord, seated at the right hand of God, as Savior who's coming again and judge the living and the dead. He, yeah, I know Jesus. He's my buddy. He sits right here. I talk to him. You know, he, he, and I, he and I are buds. And, and, and like every time that I would approach him, he would uh, he, he'd default to the same thing again. He, he had this imaginary Jesus that I don't know where he ever came up with him. Where did you find him? How did you conclude that this is Jesus? Because Scripture does not reveal that type of Jesus. Our only choice is to accept Christ exactly as he is seen on the pages of the Bible. Or dismiss him entirely. One or the other. Returning to our texts, the Pharisees dismissed that which they could not see. They repeatedly demanded more visible evidence. This is where the passage can get a little bit puzzling right here. I found it puzzling at least because Jesus says his kingdom comes without visible signs, without signs to be observed. Uh, Again, we know this must refer to the existing invisible kingdom because verse 24 reveals the future manifestation of his kingdom. That's going to come with A sign. We're going to see that in in verse 24. That, there's going to be a sign. Problem is, by that time, it's going to be too late. We'll study that. Uh, Begin studying it next week. Uh, Yet the elephant remaining in the room that nobody can ignore is that Jesus had just miraculously healed or cleansed ten lepers. That, that was the passage we studied last week directly before this. Isn't that a visible sign? Isn't that something to be observed? Now, there might have been a time lapse in between the lepers being cleansed and there might have been a few days before uh, the Pharisees encountered Jesus at this point. But nonetheless, the Holy Spirit put it here for a reason. There's a reason it is in this order. Uh, as I stated earlier, it isn't inserted by accident. The Holy Spirit placed it here so we would be forced to understand it. We'd be forced to come to grips with an explanation. Ten lepers healed, yet the kingdom doesn't come with visible signs. And, and most explanations I hear go something like this. John MacArthur writes in his study Bible, you might have it before you, he says uh, the Pharisees believed that the Messiah's triumph would be immediate. That is true. They were looking for him to come to overthrow Rome and to set up the millennial kingdom. So, 
they surely were expecting an observable kingdom. It might have been more like the kingdom of Solomon, a victorious kingdom of of glory. Uh, That is true. They they might have expected it to be established quickly. That's one explanation. Lepers cleansed and raised from the dead. They weren't particular signs of a kingdom. The Pharisees anticipated an inauguration of a kingdom. But look at, this, look at it this way. Establishing a kingdom? That's not a sign. I don't, I don't know how that fulfills the need for a sign. Establishing a kingdom is establishing a kingdom. They were seeking for a sign. Additionally, we see again and again in Scripture where Pharisees are demanding a sign from heaven. You know, something powerful in order to trust in Christ. I think that is more on track of what we're seeing here. Another writer comments, Jesus apparently means that the arrival of the kingdom of God will not be accompanied by spectacular signs in the heavens, but rather that the kingdom will come quietly, evident only in the change in people's lives. Um, Again, true. And he says, thus, not with signs does not, uh, does not mean without miracles. Just because there aren't signs doesn't mean that there aren't other miracles. So that opinion suggests there's a categorical difference between the heavenly signs and the boring, you know, generic signs like raising people from the dead and cleansing lepers and so on, uh, which apparently, with that argument, are not signs. You know, I'm studying it. This week I'm looking at this. I'm studying it, but I'm not seeing it. Complicating this to me is uh, the Gospel of John, where it says in chapter 2 that the turning of water into wine was just the beginning of his signs. Hmm. Some will point out that the word in in our passage today in Luke chapter 17, the word signs isn't the typical word for signs that is used throughout the Gospels, but it is a word that means to watch closely. Something you watch closely for. And Jesus is saying, it isn't something that you can watch closely for or you're going to miss it. Follow me? Um, The turning of water into wine was just the beginning. It was the beginning of signs. And in John 7, the crowds who believed, listen to this, they're saying, when the Christ comes, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? They had seen signs. They called them signs. They were watching him very closely for signs. So actually it seems that throughout Jesus' ministry and up until his death, there were all kinds of visible signs. He turned water into wine. He fed 5,000. He fed 4,000 more. He, he walked on water. He, uh, he cleansed the lepers. He raised the dead. He, he healed thousands. Those sure appear to me to be signs. Yet Jesus says, listen closely, 
the kingdom of God is not coming. Think of the spiritual kingdom. The kingdom of God is not coming or does not come with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is. What's the answer to the riddle? I'm going to offer you what I think. This is buyer beware on this one. In John 12, verse 40, Jesus said to the crowds, While you have the light, believe in the light, so that you may become sons of light. These things Jesus spoke, and he went away and hid himself from them. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah, the prophet which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe, for Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart, be converted, and Christ heal them. Why does Jesus say the kingdom does not come with signs or or is not coming with signs to be observed? Is it because there were no signs? Why are they not able to say, look, here it is, or or, there it is? Is because they can't see the kingdom because they are spiritually blind. They're blind. They can't heed the signs because they are blinded. When Jesus says the kingdom of God is not coming with signs, he doesn't mean that I haven't provided signs. He provided plentiful signs. What Jesus means is that the kingdom is here. It's in your midst. But you can't see it because you're blind. You can't see the observable signs. The kingdom of God doesn't come that way. That's not how you enter the kingdom. What recent event, and I already talked about it, serves as a perfect illustration of the principle that nobody enters the kingdom by observable signs. It was in our previous passage. There are ten lepers. Ten lepers we looked at last week. All ten miraculously healed But nine fail to enter the kingdom of God even when they're given a sign pointing right at him. Their their leprosy is cleansed. Can't get any clearer sign than that. No clearer sign than that. Why didn't they see the sign? Why didn't they notice the sign? Folks, it's because they're blind. They couldn't see the sign. They're healed of leprosy and couldn't see the sign that the kingdom was upon them. How then do you enter the kingdom? If you can't look at a sign, you're at the street corner and you got these signs pointing this way and that way. If you can't see a sign, even a miraculous sign, how do you enter the kingdom? Even though there are many signs pointing at Christ, everyone is blind. I'm glad you asked that question because in John chapter 3, I've been in John a lot today. This has been pretty good. 
In John chapter 3, Jesus shows us, and you could turn there, that'd be good. Turn to John chapter 3 because Jesus is going to show us how the blind enter the kingdom. This is how blind, people spiritually blind, enter the kingdom. It's not by signs. They're, they're blind. They can't see it. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Why can't he see it? Blind. Blind. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Uh, Meaning, the, the physical, natural birth provides inadequate. It's completely inadequate. There must be a spiritual rebirth to enter the kingdom. Then Jesus continues, That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Folks, don't let that last line pass you by there. Um, speaking of the Holy Spirit, Jesus says this, The wind blows where it wishes. And you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. The moving of the Holy Spirit is like a wind. You can't see it. You don't know where it's coming from. You don't know where it is going. Jesus says, So is everyone. Everyone who is born of the Spirit. And he says, everyone must be born again, that's verse 3, in order to see the kingdom. No exceptions. No exceptions. You must be born again. Uh, To enter the kingdom, you can't follow signs. Even if they're right in front of your face. Even if they're right there. Nicodemus saw the signs. Nicodemus said, how could you do all of these signs if you aren't from God? Yet he was... Blind, dead blind. Nine lepers directly benefited from miraculous signs, but did not return to worship Jesus. You must experience a spiritual rebirth in order to enter the kingdom of God. That's the only way to enter. You must be born again. Also, don't overlook the sovereignty of God in this passage. God the Holy Spirit concerning spiritual regeneration as Jesus provides the analogy of a wind where the wind blows, it blows where it wishes. So is everyone born of the Spirit. Everyone must enter the kingdom by being born again by the Holy Spirit of God. There are no exceptions. Then you will see the presence of a kingdom that is unseen by others who are blind. That's why, by the way, this single leper 
was the one who turned around and praised God and went and fell at the feet of Jesus and worshipped him and gave thanks. He saw a kingdom with a king. He entered it, not by a sign, but by the Spirit. Um, What did Nicodemus see at this point? He didn't see nothing yet. Couldn't see it. There were signs, but he couldn't see it. About being spiritually born again to enter an invisible kingdom, Nicodemus said to Jesus, how can these things be? How can it be? How can it possible be? Possibly be. Um, do you wish today, think to yourself, do you wish to enter the kingdom? You have to answer yourself. Nicodemus wanted to enter the kingdom. Everybody wants to enter the kingdom. Some can't see that you enter through the door who is Christ. Nicodemus longed to see. If you too wish to see, listen closely to Jesus' response to Nicodemus because this is how, Jesus says, you enter the kingdom of God. Uh, It's going to be a reply. You can follow along. begins in John 3, verse 10. Contains some of the most famous recognizable words in all of Scripture. And after telling Nicodemus you must be born again, Jesus said these words. If you are here today praying for others to be saved, you might want to pray through this passage as I read. Jesus answered to Nicodemus by clarifying, this is how you enter the kingdom. It's not by signs. He said, are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, We speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So Christ came down from heaven. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, Nicodemus would have been familiar with this as a Pharisee, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the man, uh, the son of man must be lifted up. We sang earlier, he must be lifted high. He was lifted upon a cross. Why? He provides the answer. So that whoever believes in him have eternal life. That's why he was lifted up. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment, says Jesus, that the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for the fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be revealed as having been accomplished in God. God does it. Have your deeds been evil? 
Have you come to the light? Have you believed that Christ was lifted high on a cross for your sins? You know, blind men grope after heaven. You go out on the street and ask people how they know they're going to heaven, they're going to come up with all kinds of different ways that they, they're getting themselves to heaven. They're groping after it like blind men when Christ is right in front of them. You know, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks a sign. Yet yeah, yeah, Jesus says no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah, right? That's the only sign. And the only sign to heaven is, is the one that says that God, uh, God the Son died for sins and spent three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, that is in the grave, and then rose again on the third day. And fo- like Jeff Foxy, Foxworthy would say, folks, this is your sign. It's the only sign you're going to get. There's no other sign that can light your way into heaven. It's the only sign needed. If you, if you won't believe this, that Christ died for our sins and victoriously rose from the dead, there's no miracle or sign that's going to get you into heaven. If you're waiting to see something, yet you won't believe that Christ is raised from the dead, it, it's hopeless. It's hopeless. You, aren't, you can keep on waiting. You can keep on watching closely, but you aren't going to get any sign. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you see the kingdom? Like Nicodemus, the woman at the well, she, she was fixated on what she could see. She had, they had the mountain there that they worshipped on in Samaria. Uh, maybe it's at the temple. Maybe, maybe this is how I approach God. Maybe, maybe this is the way into heaven. She remained fixated on what she could see rather than the spiritual that she could not. And she said, Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say that in Jerusalem is a place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is. I mean, it's already here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for such, such people the Father seeks to be His worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know the Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when that one comes, He will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Believing the woman ran to town to tell everybody she knew. Scripture says that she went into the town, told everyone that she had maybe seen the Christ. Many more believed, Scripture says, because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, It is no longer because of what you have said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. Does that describe you today? Do you believe that Christ is the Savior of the world? It's the only sign you need. You enter your kingdom, uh, his kingdom, through him. You know, many entered the kingdom on that day. How about you today? 
The Pharisees asked, where is the kingdom? When is it coming? Jesus replied, the kingdom of God is already in your midst. Let's pray today the the Lord's Prayer. If you can throw that up there. This will be our closing prayer.